Well, Wednesday night was definitely a special night here at the church when we got to look at Jesus and his conversation with the woman at the well. And if you've got a Bible, please open it up to John chapter 4. And this conversation that he takes place is so amazing to me because of the love that Jesus shows for this woman. And even she says, why are you, a Jew, a man, talking to me, a Samaritan woman? I mean, in the culture, the Jews were racist against the Samaritans, and men often did not talk to women, not in public, particularly not women like this woman, a woman who had had five husbands, and the man she was now with was not her husband, a woman of sin. And the implication is perhaps she was even uh, going to draw water in the middle of the day because she was avoiding everyone there in the town because she was a social outcast. But Jesus goes out of his way to meet this woman at the well and to reveal himself to her. That Jesus is the kind of Savior who came to seek us out and draw us to Himself. He didn't wait for us to come to Him. He came after us. That's the kind of Jesus that we serve. And so He seeks out this woman that's probably just an outcast and overlooked even by those around her, even by maybe the men in her life. And He comes and He confronts her sin and He answers her questions and He reveals to her, to her that he is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one who has come to save. And this woman who came out to get water leaves her water pot at the well and runs back into town and says, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And the entire town, it seems like, comes out And they hear Jesus, and Jesus stays with them in that town for two days. And many people, it says, believed in Jesus, and they said, you are the Savior of the world. Jesus comes and reveals himself to one sketchy woman who turns the whole town upside down in the name of Jesus, and many believe. Revival breaks out in this Samaritan town. Praise the Lord for that, right? I mean, it's such a great story, and what's so encouraging even is afterwards we had some women here on Wednesday night who have lived lives perhaps similar to this woman at the well who said they wanted that living water inside of their soul, and they wanted to stop dumping their lives into broken wells that could hold no water, and they cried out to Jesus to save them here on Wednesday night. We had one woman who her neighbor has been inviting her for years since we were meeting at Marina High School to come to this church, and she just happens to come for the first time on Wednesday night when we're preaching on the woman at the well. And by the end of the night, she's crying, and in tears she says, I want to repent of my sins. I want the life in Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus does. Jesus saves. And you would think, why doesn't every woman respond like this woman? Why doesn't every town respond like this town? When Jesus comes to town, surely revival should break out, right? I mean, the whole gospel should be full of epic stories of the love of the Savior, seeking out the lost, finding them, and that good news just echoing and resounding, right? But what we see here is that that's really the last kind of happy moment we have for a long time in the Gospel of John. 
I mean, it takes a real turn for the worse. After this great story with this woman who gets saved in John chapter 4, we read this in John chapter 4, verse 43. And we start to begin to see the conflict that comes between Jesus and the Jews of his day. It says this in John chapter 4, verse 43, kind of an ominous uh, paragraph here. After the two days he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. Time out. I thought we were doing great. I mean, look back at verse 42. We know that this is indeed the Savior of the world, the whole town, it seems like, believing in Jesus. And then all of a sudden, it takes this kind of negative plot twist here, this dark turn. Well, now Jesus is going back to his own people, and we know that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. And so when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, but it was a different kind of welcome. It wasn't the savior of the world. It wasn't the one to save them from their sins. No, it was a welcome having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they too had gone to the feast. See, what we're going to see here is that the people in the the Samaritans, the people in the town of Sychar, they worshiped Jesus as the Messiah. They celebrated Jesus as the Savior of the world. But here in his hometown, in the area of Galilee, among the Jewish people, see, they could only celebrate him as a, a worker of miracles, as a doer of signs. It wasn't beyond that. It wasn't worship of God. They didn't come to him for their own salvation. And so what we actually see, starting here with that line in parentheses in verse 44, that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown, we start to see the rejection of Jesus. And so we come to this miracle here in verse 46, and you will see that it's not a miracle of faith at all. Look at John 4:46, and let me read this section to chapter 5. Here's a miracle, but, but Jesus doesn't seem to even take a lot of joy in this miracle because he knows people don't really believe in him. Verse 46, so he came again to Cana in Galilee where he had made the water wine, back to the sign of his first miracle that we looked at a few weeks ago. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. And when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. But Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. So Jesus actually saying that this man is saying this not out of faith, but out of unbelief. And the official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. And the man, now he believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and he went on his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, which would be 1 p.m., the fever left him. And the father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Here's Jesus coming back home, back to where he grew up, back to where people knew him best. And a man runs up to him, please heal my son who's going to die. Heal my son, give him life. But Jesus, you can see, 
He, he's not excited about what's going on. Look back at verse 48, and you'll notice a key footnote here. When you see what Jesus said, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. You've got a footnote there that makes it clear that in the Greek language, that you is a plural you. So Jesus isn't just addressing this dad who wants so badly for his son to live. He's addressing the whole crowd there, really the whole people, the whole Jewish population in the region of Galilee, this northern region above Samaria. He's saying what you guys want is you want to be proven. You want me to prove who I am. You want the signs. You want the wonders. Then maybe you'll believe. You can almost hear the tone of Jesus' voice here where he's thinking back to Sychar and how everyone there was so excited to celebrate the Savior of the world. And then he comes home and they're like, hey, can you do something for us, Jesus? Where have you been? It's not by faith. It's not till after Jesus heals the man's son that the man actually believes Jesus is the Messiah, is God, and actually puts his faith in a saving kind of way till Jesus. No, he has to, the signs have to prove it to him. Jesus didn't do any signs with the woman at the well. As far as we know, he did no miracles in the town of Sychar. No, he just came and he told them who he was and he told them who they were in their sin and that he was the one who could offer them living water and they believed in him and called him the savior of the world. But when he comes home to his hometown, well, there this prophet received no honor. Now, this is something that is recorded. That phrase in verse 44 in parentheses is recorded in every single one of the gospels, okay? In every single gospel, it makes it very clear that in his hometown, Jesus was rejected. Okay? And so what we're going to look at this morning is actually three reasons people reject Jesus. So if you could write that at the top of your handouts, the point one, two, and three are going to give you three reasons people reject Jesus. Specifically, the Jewish people, his hometown, the people who knew more about the Messiah and should have been more ready to receive him than anybody else, actually the exact opposite happens. And they are the people who reject him the most strongly. And so this was not an act of faith for this dad to come and bring his kid to be saved by Jesus, to ask Jesus to come and save his son. It was not an act of faith. Now, you might be confusing this miracle. There's another miracle that takes place, and you can read about it in Matthew chapter 8. It's when a centurion comes to Jesus, and he asks Jesus to save his servant. Now, a centurion would not have been a Jew. He would have been seen as a Gentile. He would have been seen as not one of God's people. And when he comes to Jesus and asks him to save, not even his son, but his servant, he doesn't need Jesus to come and save him. He says, Jesus, if you just speak it, I know he'll be healed. I understand how authority works. I, I, I have, I'm a man under authority, and I have soldiers under me. If I say to them, go, they go. If I say to them, come, they come. If you say the words, my servant will be healed. And Jesus is blown away by that centurion, that Gentile. And he says, I haven't even seen faith like this in all of Israel. This Gentile has more faith than all of my people, all of the Jewish people. And he's just blown away by the faith that the guy has. This story is the exact opposite. This dad has no faith in Jesus' mind. No, he has to see the signs to believe in Jesus. 
Because in his hometown, he doesn't get honor. In fact, you could write down Matthew 13, 56 and 57 and 58. Those verses right there where Jesus says the same idea that a prophet is without honor in his hometown. And it says that he limited the amount of signs that he did in his hometown area, in the area of Galilee. Because of their unbelief, he did less miracles in that area because that's just what they wanted was the signs and they didn't really believe in him. And so he would drew his miracles from them because he's so discouraged by the rejection of his hometown people. The greatest example of the rejection of Jesus in his literal town where he grew up is in Luke chapter 4. Grab your Bible and turn there with me this morning and we'll see Jesus get turned on by the city of Nazareth, this town on a hill there in Galilee where Jesus grew up with his mother and his brothers and there comes a day when he comes of age and he begins his ministry and when Jesus begins his public ministry this is one of the first stories that Luke tells because Luke wants to let us know right away that Jesus was rejected by his own people. In fact, John said this right at the beginning. In John chapter 1 verse 11 it says that he came to his own. The word became flesh And he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. I mean, the story of Jesus Christ, God becoming man. What a story it is. What glory we should give him. But that's not how he was received when he came. He was rejected by his own people. And look at what happens here in Luke 4. Uh, Start with me here in verse 16. You'll notice the heading, Jesus rejected at Nazareth. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. I mean, this is where he was born, where he was raised. Not where he was born, but where he grew up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll. And he found the place where it was written. So Jesus picked this passage from Isaiah 61, verse 1 and 2, to read there in the synagogue in Nazareth. And he stood up to read it. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, and he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. That was the position of teaching back in the day. That meant you were about to speak with authority when you sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. What is he going to say about this scripture? He has everyone's attention. And verse 21, and he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And everyone's like, ooh, everybody liked this part. And all spoke well of him. And they marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, wow, is this not Joseph's son? But look at how he speaks. What's going on? And then he gave his sermon here. And he said to them, doubtless, you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, the miracles, the signs, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly, I say to you, No prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, where many widows in Israel 
There were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elisha was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. You know what he says to the Jewish people? Hey, I understand how you guys work. You're going to reject me, and you know who's going to receive me the gentile people you think you're god's people well you know the people who are really going to receive the son of god the gentiles he says and people go from marveling and saying ooh and ah at the words of jesus to verse 28 when they heard these things all in the synagogue were filled with wrath and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. Well, Jesus is back in town. Oh, he's speaking at the synagogue. Let's go hear Jesus, everybody. All oh, listen to Jesus. Sweet little Jesus boy. It's so nice to have him back. And then he starts saying what is really going on. Then he starts prophesying how they were going to reject him and the word of God was going to go to the Gentiles and would be spread to all nations that every tribe and tongue would glorify Jesus Christ and they hate it so much they run him. I have been to that hill. I have looked over that cliff and if they had pushed Jesus off of that cliff, that would have been the end of it right there. He would have died falling down that hill. They wanted to kill him. Because they hated the idea that God wouldn't come to them, but would reveal himself to someone else. They were so self-righteous. They were so good just the way that they were. They were already God's people that when God was right in front of, him, front of them, they couldn't even recognize him. They rejected him. They wanted to kill him. And then something miraculous happens in verse 30. We're passing through their midst. He went away. See, the reason the people in that synagogue did not really get the message is they did not consider themselves, if you go back to the verses that he read from Isaiah 61, verse 18 here in Luke 4, they were not the poor, they were not the captives, they were not the blind, they were not the oppressed. See, the gospel is only good news if you can't see. The gospel is only good news if you're a captive who needs to be set free. Jesus is only your savior if you have something you need to be saved from. Only sinners need Jesus, see. And these people, they weren't in that category. They were good. They were church-going folk, see. And they, and they weren't going to accept this message that Jesus Christ was giving to them. And so point number one, let's just get it down like this. reason people re reject Jesus, they don't see their need. They don't see their sin. These people, they, they have a hard time seeing that Jesus is the Savior of the world because they don't need saving. The gospel is good news if you're spiritually bankrupt, and you realize you can't be a good person, if you know that you're born in sin, if you realize that you're enslaved to sin and it has power over you, that you can't even tell yourself no, if you're blind to spiritual realities, if you're oppressed, if you're, if you're a captive, see, then the good news of Jesus comes across good news if you believe the bad news of your own sin. You'll love the good news of Jesus, but the Jewish people were already God's people. And so they didn't need God to come and rescue them. That's why they rejected Jesus. 
And we've talked a lot about this recently. I don't think I need to say this again. I mean, if you were here last week, it was all about us humbling ourselves before the Lord and we're just his slaves. If you were here two weeks ago, we said that everybody here is a cesspool of wickedness. Do you remember that sermon? Anybody here for that? It's amazing you came back, you know? Because we said everybody here was born into sin. I mean, this is, this is a great description of how you were born. Poor, captive, blind, oppressed. Yeah, you got some bad news about you. That's why you need this sweet good news of Jesus Christ. See? But if you're okay, if you're fine just the way you are, well, this is an offensive message to you. If you're already one of the good people. I mean, the dad that comes to Jesus, and I can relate to the dad. Man, when my kids just get a little bit sick, I, I get really concerned, right? I mean, I don't want my kids to die of an illness. I can relate to the dad coming to Jesus and begging him for the life of my son. But it reminds me of the dad who brings his kids to a church like this one because he thinks his kids could benefit from coming to church when the dad doesn't even believe in Jesus Christ himself. There's a lot of that going on. Well, maybe now that I've got kids... I should get my act together because I don't want my kids to turn out the way I did. So I'll take my kids to church. But still, I'm not repenting of my sin. I'm not admitting that I need a Savior. I'm not putting all of my trust, not in myself, but in the good news of Jesus, that he's the only one who can save me. The hypocrisy of parents who want their kids to turn out right when they won't even admit that they're messed up themselves. And there's a lot of that going on. There's, that happens here at this church. That's what dad was doing. Hey, Jesus, will you fix my kid? I don't really need fixing, but I would really love for you to save my kid. No, The reason our kids need saving is they came from us. And we've got to admit that we are sinners who need to be saved. But the crowd here in Nazareth, no, they weren't going to admit to being the poor, the blind, the oppressed, uh, the captives. Will you admit that you need a Savior or will you reject Him? Now go back to our passage in John chapter 5 because we stack up another miracle right on top of that one to continue the same idea of rejection and disbelief and that people wanted to see signs, but even the signs weren't really giving them the point of who Jesus was. So start with me now in chapter 5, verse 1. As our, this next miracle is going to continue to introduce us to the rejection of Jesus. After this, there was a feast of the Jews. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So he goes back now down south to Judea, where everyone is gathering for another feast. And there is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool. In Aramaic, it's called Bethesda. And it has five roofed colonnades. And in these, there's a multitude of invalids. There's blind people in here. There's lame people in here. There's paralyzed people. So people would gather by this pool. And you got a footnote there um, that's put down at the bottom because it wasn't a part of the original text, we don't believe. So they put it here at the bottom. But a footnote to explain that there was this tradition that when the water moved here in the pool of Bethesda, that if you got into the water, you would be healed from whatever your, uh, whatever your problem was here. All kinds of different invalids, it says. Uh, people with clear physical problems. Blind people, lame people, paralyzed people. In fact, there was one man there by this pool hoping for a miracle, hoping to be healed, and he had been an invalid for 38 years. Okay, just in case you were wondering if this guy really had a problem, well, 38 years 
He had been an invalid. And when Jesus saw him lying there, and he knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. He's waiting for this tradition to to happen there at the pool. And, And while I'm going, another steps down before me. I'm never the first one in the pool. I'm never getting healed. And Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once, the man was healed. 38 years. And all of a sudden, he can take up his bed and he can walk. And he... Now, a little note here that's going to cause a lot of trouble. That day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered to them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, and really what the guy's doing here is he's blaming Jesus. He's saying, Well, it's not my fault. The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, well, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now, the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, later, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Hey, don't miss the point of me healing you. It's to turn from your sin. It's to live a new life. Well, the man went away, and he goes back, actually, to the religious leaders, to the Jewish authorities, and to tell them that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. You want to talk about a classic case of missing the point. We've got a man who's a 38 year invalid who's just been healed who can now walk when he hasn't been able to for 38 years and the response of the Jews of the day is do you know what day it is like put your bed down please sir you're not supposed to be taking up your bed and walking okay now if you read the Ten Commandments you will see At the fourth commandment there is a command that we are supposed to keep the Sabbath day holy. And the command is that we are not supposed to work. It is supposed to be a day of rest. It is supposed to be a uh, day of remembrance that God has created us and saved us. A day to stop, to be still, and to know that he is God. That is the point of the Sabbath day. Okay? I do not think that this guy was getting paid to be a professional bedwalker. Do you understand what I'm saying? This was not his work. This was not his job. We are, we are totally missing the point of the Sabbath here. We have done an amazing miracle. God is among us. The Savior of all men is here working, doing miracles. But no, we want to argue about what day it is. I mean, if you want to look up a definition of spiritual blindness There it is. And that's what Jesus will say in John 9 when he heals a blind man on the Sabbath. you got to start wondering at some point why Jesus always seemed to be healing people on the Sabbath. It's like, can't we heal people other days, Jesus? But for some reason, he always seems to want to heal them on the Sabbath. Like he's trying to make a point almost to these people. And he turns it on them in John 9 when he heals the man born blind. And he says, you're actually the blind ones because you can't see what I'm doing. And you're so fixated on this one little rule. 
And it wasn't even the rule that God had given in the Scripture that they were fixated on. No, the Pharisees had added on to the Scripture all kinds of categories, some 39 different categories of work that you were not allowed to do on the Sabbath day. They're not upset because God's law is being broken. They're upset because man's law is being broken. They're upset because somebody's not doing what they said to do. And they want to be in charge. See, And so they could miss. This is how cold and this is how uncompassionate people can be when they're so focused on the rules. See, Here's one reason that people reject Jesus all across the world is they don't get the rules. Point number two, let's put it down like this. People do not understand how the rules are supposed to work. And the Pharisees, the Jewish people of the day, they thought that they could actually keep the rules, that they could actually obey the law, and therefore, to some degree, they could actually save themselves. Oh, they would have done it in a very reverent way, offering sacrifices to God and giving all this lip service to the glory of God, but the truth is how they thought they were going to be acceptable in the sight of God was by keeping all of these rules, in fact, They thought spirituality and they thought being close to God meant doing even more rules, adding even more rules onto the law that God had given. The point of the law, my friends, is to help us see there's no way I'll ever live up to that standard. I'm a sinner who needs to ask for forgiveness and needs a new heart so I can even start to want to do those things. No, these people were self-deceived into thinking, I'll actually do what God has commanded me to do. It's this word that we need to really hate around here, and we need to never tolerate. It's called legalism. Anybody ever heard about this before? This is one of our arch nemesis here at Compass Bible Church, okay? And what's crazy is, because we preach the Bible and we say that we should do what God says in the Bible, people will even accuse us of being legalists, but don't you believe it, because we hate legalism here at this church. Can I get an amen from anybody about that? Okay. Let me just tell you right now, if you think you are a good person or you could ever do something to be a good person or that somehow you could actually do what God tells you to do here in this book in your own strength, in your sinful nature, see, then you are proud and you are a legalist just like these Jews. And Jesus, he's pointing out by doing this on the Sabbath, he is intentionally poking his finger at the problem of the Jewish people that their hope for righteousness was in obeying the law. And that's how they thought they would be saved. That's why they didn't need him. And so let's just get a definition for legalism. Legalism, just a rough working definition for us here at the church, doing good works to be saved thinking that you, in your own strength, could somehow earn favor with God or please God by your own pious actions. That's what legalism is, okay? And that's what's happening here. And that's why the Jewish people, because they have the law and they're keeping the law and they're trying to do what it says and they're offering their sacrifices when they don't do it right, they don't need a Savior because they think they're actually working their way to right relationship with God, which was never the point of the law in the first place. But that's what they have twisted it into. 
So there's many different passages that we could turn to all across the Gospels, and we'll get to this even further in the Gospel of John, where miracles just happen to happen on the Sabbath, and that becomes the sticking point that keeps on infuriating the Jews, and Jesus keeps on doing miracles on the Sabbath to prove to them that that's what they're putting their hope in, and keeping the rules, okay? Now, there are groups of people on this planet who, who are encouraging people, and, and they usually don't say, hey, keep the rules and you'll, and you'll go to heaven. No, it's usually tied into some kind of faith, but it's faith that gets buried under all these other things that you've got to do on top of your faith, okay? And let me just tell you that you're either saved by faith alone or you're not saved by faith at all, okay? You, you can't be faith and get baptized, Faith and take a pilgrimage to Mecca. Faith and confess your sins to a priest. No, it's simply by faith in what Jesus did. It's his work that saves you. You don't add one single work to it. This is the part where we all say, amen, right? We give all the glory here to Jesus Christ. Go to Galatians chapter 2, and you'll see Paul. Paul who was a Pharisee. Paul who was a self-righteous man. A man who was literally trying to do everything right to be saved. I mean, the legalists these days don't seem very serious to me to really trying to do everything right. They seem like they just want to do mostly right or good enough. But Paul, he would have been the kind of legalist where he was trying to do it all right. And Galatians is now a book that he has written against legalism, against doing any work to be saved. And he says, if you add one work on top of the good news of Christ, then you have to fulfill the whole law to save yourself and you will never be saved. And he says it like this. Just see if he makes it clear here in Galatians chapter 2, verse 15. Galatians chapter 2, verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth. So here's a Jew who gets it. It's not about being a Jew. That doesn't save you. It's not about keeping the law. That doesn't save you. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet... We know that a person is not justified, not declared righteous, not saved by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So if you weren't paying attention there, Three different times in those verses, he said, it, this is from the Department of Redundancy Department, that there is no one who can do works of the law to be declared righteous by God. I'm a Jew. I get it. I understand the law. In fact, Paul probably knew the law better than anybody else. He was up there with the law experts of his day. But he is saying, I get it that I'm a Jew, not a Gentile, but I'm not trying to do the law. I'm not putting my trust in my own goodness to be saved. No, it's by faith in Christ. And then one of the great verses of all time, Galatians chapter 2, look down at verse 20. Here's how he actually describes our salvation. I have been crucified with Christ. It's like I died to my old life of sin with Christ. And it's no longer I who live. Now it's Christ living in me. 
And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Everything I do now is based on my trust and confidence in Jesus who loved me and gave himself for me. I'm not saved by the things I do. I'm saved as I get united with Christ, as I die with him and rise to a new life. Jesus saves me and I live my new life in him, Paul says, rebuking. Still, the Jewish people need to be rebuked even after Jesus because they don't get it. And so that's what Galatians is all about, legalism. See, they don't get it. They're so focused on the fact that the guy is carrying his bed that they're missing the fact that for 38 years the guy couldn't even walk. And they focus on this detail that really doesn't matter. Now, legalism it is a big problem that we have. But what often happens also is people flip the rules to completely the opposite direction. And if you're telling me I'm not saved by the rules, then I guess the rules really don't matter at all. I guess I just put my faith in Jesus and I'm saved by, by his work dying for me and rising again. So I guess it really doesn't matter what I do and I'm just kind of free how to live however I want, do whatever. I mean, if I sin, it's not a big deal. He'll forgive me. No, that's actually called antinomianism. Let's write that down, okay? This is the opposite of legalism. And sometimes people swing from one extreme to the other extreme. Legalism says, do good works to save yourself. Well, antinomianism, and we want to break that word down. We know what anti means. It means against. And nomianism is the idea of law. Namos is the Greek word for law. So antinomianism means, so instead of trying to keep the law, I turn against the law. And I start to act like it doesn't matter if I do good works as a saved person. It doesn't matter if I keep the law. Everything's cool now. I'm united with Jesus. It's all good. I'm going to heaven. So let's just eat, drink, and be merry now for we'll get to heaven later. And there's a lot of people in the church acting like this philosophy. They don't understand the rules either. They think now the rules just don't even matter at all. Well, turn with me to Romans chapter 6. And I want to also protect you from this extreme. These are two extremes. See, the, the law, the rules, the commands of Scripture are complicated because you can't just think one way about them. You have to think two different ways about them. You have to watch out for legalism, and you have to watch out for antinomianism at the same time. Here's, here's the passage against one of them, against antinomianism, against living like you can do whatever you want to do as a Christian because you're not bound to keep the law. What shall we say then? Here's a question for you. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? What do you guys think? Is it okay to keep on sinning because God's just going to forgive you anyways? I would hope we would have a big, by no means, exclamation point after the end of that. That doesn't make any sense. How can we who died to sin, if we're crucified with Christ and we've died to our old life of sin, how could we still live in it? Do you not know all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? If you've been placed into Christ... You were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. No, if we're united with Christ, if we've died to our old life of sin and we've risen again to a new life, no, now in that new life, now we actually can walk in the way that Jesus commands us to walk in. 
Now, and when I have a new heart and the power of the living God, His Holy Spirit within me, then He will actually cause me to walk in His ways and to keep His laws. Not, not perfectly, but that will be the direction of my life as I will actually now find delight and pleasure in doing what God asks me to do. I won't be feeling like I have to do it to earn favor with God. No, I'll see that God loves me in Christ and I'll want to thank Him and honor Him in the way that I live. So good works are both bad if you're trying to do them to be saved, but also good because they're actually the evidence of your new life in Christ. They're the evidence that you have been saved. And the Pharisees, they couldn't get this at all. They couldn't get this at all. I mean, can you imagine that the heartlessness that people sometimes at church get when, when, when someone is in the waters of baptism maybe? sharing their testimony, or some new Christian is running around here talking about how, what Jesus has done in their life, and we're over here nitpicking some little thing that they did wrong. And it's not even really a biblical sin that they're committing. It's just something that doesn't live up to our standard. How cold, how heartless do you have to be that when a guy who hasn't walked for 38 years is carrying his bed, the one thing that you focus on is that he's carrying something on the Sabbath. I mean, that is a dead soul right there. All in the name of doing good. Judging someone else. I hope we don't have any of that kind of legalism here at our church, and I hope we don't jump to the other extreme of antinomianism, where I guess it doesn't really matter what we do here as Christians then. No, we're not going to get saved by good works. We're going to get saved by faith in Christ. But when we put our faith in Christ, man, He's going to change our life, and we're going to want to live for Him. It's so important that we get this right, because the Jews of Jesus' day rejected. They completely missed Jesus because they didn't understand how good works work. We need to make sure that we understand that here at this church. But this isn't even the main reason they rejected it. Go back to John 5, and here's the kicker. Here's the punchline of our sermon this morning. This is the real issue. Okay. Uh, yeah, people had a hard time believing in, in a prophet in his hometown. People didn't like that Jesus was doing miracles on the Sabbath. And it was annoying enough that Jesus would always choose to seemingly to do these miracles on the Sabbath. I mean, that was something annoying. But then it was the stuff he would say after the miracles that really got under the skin of the Jews. I mean, he would defend himself. He would speak as if he had authority to do whatever he wanted, like somehow maybe he even he had a position that was greater than the laws of men. And he would say stuff like this, oh, the, the aggravation of the things that Jesus would say to the Jews. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. Oh, so annoying. Nails on a chalkboard right there. I mean, here he is acting like, well, God's still working on the Sabbath. How do you think the universe is being upheld? How do you think you're breathing right now? How do you think people are worshiping or coming to faith on the Sabbath when they're supposed to take a day to rest and consider God? Maybe people are putting their faith in God. Maybe people are repenting of sins. Well, God's still a part of all of that on the Sabbath. God's still working on the Sabbath. Hey, my father is, and guess what? I work on the Sabbath too. What is he claiming there? Well, and if you don't understand what he's claiming, look at how they interpreted it. Verse 18, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, 
but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. That's why they wanted to kill him. Because he was saying that he was God. He was saying that, yeah, he still needed to work on the Sabbath. Because he's the creator. He's doing works of creation on the Sabbath because he is the one who upholds the universe by the powerful words that come out of his mouth. Like he can tell a boy to live and the boy will live. He can tell a man to take up his bed and walk and the man gets up. 38 years down, words from Jesus and he gets up, see. Because he has the words of life. He has the words of creation. And he, even on the Sabbath day, you want to know why the the world still works when everybody's taking a day of rest, he says to the Jews? Because I'm still working. Because I'm still upholding the physical universe that you live in on the Sabbath day. Because I and the Father are one, Jesus will eventually say. And they interpreted it correctly. They got what he was saying. Jesus was claiming to be God and they hated it. They didn't just want to persecute him. They didn't just want to shut him up. They wanted to kill him. That's how harsh was their rejection of Jesus Christ. They had a whole system and they were the Jews, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the people. I'm sorry if you don't like the tension that we're feeling in our text this morning, but but then you really shouldn't come back for a whole few months because chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, 10, 11, 12, it's all just going to be rising tension. And I'm sorry to tell you, but Jesus is actually the one initiating a lot of tension with these Jewish leaders because he sees them as his enemies. And he's going after them. He's saying things that are inflammatory. Okay? He's causing this tension because they have a system. And their system puts them at the top of the system. And if everybody does what they say, then everybody's okay with their system. And Jesus will not be a part of the world system. He came to crash the system. That's what he came to do. And they hated him for it. They wanted to kill him for it. They rejected him. Because here's what they didn't want. They didn't want Jesus to be in charge of their life. That's what they didn't want. They wanted to be able to make their own rules. They wanted to be able to do what they wanted to do at the end of the day. See? And when Jesus came to get all of the glory, they would not give it to him because they wanted it for themselves. The third reason people reject Jesus is they don't believe his extraordinary claims to be God. Maybe they'll say he's some prophet or some religious person, but they won't want to believe that he's God, certainly not their God. Certainly not the one who created and has authority over them, the one who's calling them to repentance and offering them salvation in a new life. See, no, Jesus, there's only one way you can take Jesus and you must take him with your knees bowed and your tongue confessing that he is Lord. The only response to Jesus is worship. That's the only way you can respond to Jesus, as God. People will always want a middle ground response to Jesus. Look for it. It's everywhere. It's all over Huntington Beach. It's in so many conversations. Do people want to write Jesus off as a lunatic? Do they want to expose him as a liar? Do people want to call Jesus a fraud? No, but do they want to give their life to him and submit to his authority as Lord? No, they want the middle ground on Jesus, and Jesus will always take the middle ground away. 
You will either worship him as God or you will reject him like the Jews did. Those are your only two options. And Jesus, he's going to keep on saying things that make it more and more clear. We cannot just all be happy to get along. We cannot just all coexist. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Anybody here have your eyes open when you're driving around on the streets and you see this bumper sticker right here? Who's seen this bumper sticker in the real world before, right? The coexist bumper sticker. There it is, right? Chillax, all you religious people. That's what it's saying, right? Why can't we all just get along? Why can't we be friends like they used to say is basically the idea. Now, this bumper sticker was originally made, I believe, uh, to go into a uh, museum in Israel. And the only three symbols on it originally were the crescent that it starts with, which represents Islam, the star of David, which represents the Jews, and then the cross at the end, which represents the Christians. And the point was that there in Jerusalem, in the Holy Land, that there would be peace among those three religious groups. And we've seen how the ideas of peace in the Middle East have worked out in our lifetime. The Palestinians and the Jews are all just getting together and singing Kumbaya. They're on the Temple Mount. Isn't that how it's working out? I mean, we do realize that the Dome of the Rock, one of the holy places of Islam, they built on top of the Temple of the Jews. There will be no peaceful resolution to that problem, okay? The Islam and the Jews are not going to coexist. So from the beginning, this was just some kind of unrealistic dream. Okay? But then what happened is this image that was about the, the Middle East, well, some kind, of, some kind of a person here in our country got a hold of it, and they turned it into kind of our political agenda, and they put on peace on there, and they put on kind of sex equality there, which I think is about kind of homosexual rights, and then they put on the, the pagan symbol on there. Then we've got the yin and yang of Taoism, and so now it's basically become this thing of like, why can't everybody just get along? It really doesn't matter what you believe or who you are, or how you were born, or the lifestyle that you live. We should all just be able to coexist together. That's what the world always wants. Hey, you believe whatever you want to believe. Just let me believe whatever I want to believe. And the problem is Jesus Christ rips that away from us. Okay? We will not coexist. Jesus will not coexist with any other God. He will not coexist with any other belief system. Jesus will not allow you to live however you want to live. That's, that's just the facts, okay? Now, if coexist means let's all learn how to love one another, well, I'm all for loving people. I'm not about judging people. I'm not about giving people a, a hard time. That, that's not what I'm saying at all, okay? But I am here to say this morning, and I will say to any one of those kinds of people, that there is only one way that anyone is going to heaven after they die. There is only one way to the Father, one way for you to really experience life as it was intended to be saved from your sins, and that's Jesus Christ. He's the one way of salvation. Okay? And this is, this is what Jesus came to say. It's me or it's nothing. That's what Jesus wants people to believe. So no, he's not okay with the Jews being who they are. He wants to destroy the religious system of works that glorifies men and not God. And he wants to destroy every lofty thing that sets itself up as some way to be saved or something to worship. Because he alone will get every knee bowing and every tongue confessing. That's how it works. 
And so eventually, Jesus is going to say the most extraordinary claim. Turn with me to chapter 14, verse 6, and let's just skip to the punchline here of another sermon that we're going to get to over a year from now. So let's get to it now. It says here in John 14, verse 6, that Jesus said to him, and Jesus is saying this on purpose, okay? This wasn't accidental. He's saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He doesn't just put it in the positive. He takes it to the negative. The only way that anyone will get to the Father is through me. So every single Jew that thinks they're going to get to the Father through Abraham and the religious law of Moses and through following what the religious leaders of the day say, they're wrong. I'm the only way. That's what Jesus says. Boom. System of Judaism crashing to the ground. Jesus being exalted on high. Take any religious system. Anything that people believe will save them. Even their non-belief that they think is going to save them in the end. And it all comes crashing down when Jesus comes to town. And he says, no, you will worship me and there is no other way. And people are going to reject that. And if you start saying that, they're going to reject you. And that's just how it's going to be. People hate Jesus. That's how it works. They do not want to bow the knee. They do not want to confess with their tongue. They do not want to worship Jesus and worship alone. So since Jesus came to this planet, he has been rejected. And there is tension and there is conflict ever since. And if you claim the side of Jesus, I guarantee you this world will come after you and try to shut you up. Because Jesus said, I'm the only way. And they killed him for it. And today, even here in chapter 5, we've got a long way to go in the Gospel of John. But here in chapter 5, verse 18, it tells us right from the beginning, they wanted to kill him, and here's why they wanted to kill him. Because he claimed to be God, and his own people rejected him. It's not a very encouraging sermon we got for you here this morning at church. Here's three reasons people reject Jesus Christ. Well, he was rejected, and uh, he was rejected to the point that the Jewish people ended up shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And they handed him over to the Romans, and he was beaten, and he was executed in the worst possible way that human beings have ever been killed on a cross through crucifixion. I mean, God became man, and men hated it, and they rejected God. And they killed him. And it's a good thing that that happened because that is, Jesus' rejection is actually why you can be accepted by the Father. Because Jesus died on that cross for your sin, because he was rejected by men, you can be accepted by God. And now sinners like us have a way. It's amazing that all of these things that he's saying, that I'm the way, that inflamed his enemies against him, are actually prophecies that led to fulfilling his salvation for all people. It was actually the hatred and rejection of the Jews that offers to all of us, now both Jew and Gentile here today, that any of us can put our faith in Jesus and immediately be accepted into God's family as one of his children, as one of his people. Go to Acts chapter 4 and you'll see that the plan when Jesus came wasn't for every person to respond like the Samaritan woman. I mean, that's the response I'm always rooting for. 
I'm always praying for revival. I don't really pray for rejection. Oh, Lord, when I preach this sermon this Sunday, God, let them all reject it. I don't really pray that prayer as I'm getting ready to come here and talk to you guys. I pray for revival. I pray for people to see their sin and respond to Jesus and to worship him and to live for him. But rejection is what happened. That was the plan when Jesus came. The woman at the well, the town of Sychar, everybody believing in him, announcing him to be the savior of the world, that wasn't the typical response that Jesus received. That was the exception, actually. The typical response that Jesus received was disbelief by the Jewish people and hatred and persecution from the Jewish leaders. That was the main thing that he, the feedback he got. You know, the plan was that he would be rejected, that he would be despised and forsaken, a man of sorrows who would die for us. And then the plan was that his followers would be the one who would actually see the revival spread. Jesus never saw revival in Jerusalem. No, it was those of little faith, empowered by the Holy Spirit who came after him. They started a revival, not in a little Samaritan town, but right in the city of Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit showed up and 3,000 people were saved in one day when Peter got up and said, you killed Jesus because you rejected him and you hated him, but God raised him from the dead. And 3,000 rejectors repented that day and were baptized and were saved and revival started spreading in the streets of Jerusalem. They killed the Messiah, but they couldn't stop him from saving the world. And it started to spread And so what they did is they arrested Peter and John for the crime. What was the crime? Well, they healed a lame beggar. That was what they did. And so they got arrested, and they got brought before the council. And here's what Peter says when he responds to the Jewish leaders who hated Jesus and killed him. This is Acts chapter 4, verse 8. Acts chapter 4, verse 8. Look what Peter says. Then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Well, let it be known to all of you. And let it be known to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, where they tried to push him off the cliff, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, Jesus, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, but it has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved." Hey, you rejected him, but let me tell you what happened. He became the cornerstone of the church, and he is the way of salvation now for all peoples. You cannot stop the salvation of Jesus Christ. That's what Peter says. You killed him, and actually by killing him, he came back and he became the cornerstone of this glorious work that God is doing in the church. And the Jewish system of works is going to fall and crumble and the church will be built and nothing can stop it. And look, even the enemies of Jesus, verse 13, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. They were blown away by what Peter said. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Jesus wasn't afraid of a little controversy. 
Jesus wasn't scared by a little bit of conflict. He didn't back down from a fight. He actually did the things that initiated the fight. And here's what Jesus wanted the world to know. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Are you rejecting Jesus here this morning in your heart? Are you not letting Jesus be Lord of your life? Do you think that you're going to save yourself by the rules? Do you think that you can just kind of mentally agree with the facts about Jesus but still live however you want? No, the rejectors of Jesus are not going to win. His enemies, they will all be defeated. See? So I just want to encourage you, if you're convicted that when we talk about them, the people who reject Jesus, if we're actually talking about you, today is the day for you to stop fighting against the Lord Jesus Christ to bow your knee, to confess with your tongue, and to worship Him today as Lord of your life. And man, if you worship Jesus, if He's your way, if He's your truth, if He's your life, hey, let's stop trying to coexist with a world of people who hate Jesus, all right? You can't do that. If we're for Jesus, then the world is going to be against us. And we need to boldly say, in Jesus' name, what he said, that there's only one name given among men under heaven by which anybody is saved, and that's the name of who? Let me hear you say it this morning. It's the name of Jesus Christ, rejected by men, glorified by God, the Savior of your soul. Okay? And if the world's going to reject Jesus, then they're going to have to reject us Two, because there's only one that we're putting our hope in for salvation here. And he is uh, our Savior, Jesus. Please pray with me. God, we thank you so much for this even intense passage that we look at here. But we thank you for the clarity with which we can see why men rejected Christ. The same reasons that men are rejecting Jesus today. God, we, they, don't, they think they're good people. They think they're fine as they are. They don't want to do the rules of Jesus or they think that the law, they can keep the law and save themselves. And ultimately, they don't want to bow the knee and worship Jesus as He is, as one with You, our Father in heaven, as the Lord of heaven and earth. God, I pray that we will not reject Jesus in our hearts, but that we would worship Him. And I pray that we will even be bold to, to not bow the knee to the world system, but to crash the world system by announcing that Jesus is, is the Lord of heaven and earth. And that He is the one way to be saved. That He is, he is God. And that He must be worshipped. We must come to Him in repentance of sin. We must put our faith in Him and experience that salvation. God, I pray that if there's anyone who still in their heart is rejecting Jesus, maybe they wouldn't have thought that when they were coming in. They would have taken a middle ground. They would have said He was the prophet. God, I pray that You will put it on their hearts and convict them to see if there's someone rejecting Jesus here this morning, they should stop doing that. And they should worship Him today. They should change their mind about Jesus and give Him their soul, give Him their life as the only one who can save them. And God, for those of us who have been saved, make us bold like Peter. Fill us with the Holy Spirit. Let us not back down and let us say that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And give Him the glory. We pray this in His name. Amen.